Hello and welcome to The Wire, your national and independent coverage of current affairs right across Australia on Community and Indigenous Radio. I'm Emma Watsky coming to you from Radio Adelaide in Tandanya on the lands of Ghanamina. Our team pays our deepest respect to elders past and present. We extend this respect to all First Nations listeners and to the rightful custodians of the lands you are listening in from. And today on the show... 200,000 books being pirated, of which 18,000 of those are Australian authors. And I know quite a few people whose works have been used like that illegally, going against copyright law completely. And at the same time, the tech companies are monetizing these... AI is taking the creative sector by storm, but it's stirring concern over copyright laws and deepening ethical debates. We'll have this and more for you over the next half hour. We're on air across Australia thanks to the Community Radio Network and the support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. First up, is there a key to happiness? What makes a personal society their happiest? The quest for happiness and to understand its core meaning has been met with a number of perspectives throughout history. Author and former journalist Adelaide's Mike Warsman travelled to over 60 countries and across six continents. His objective? To document the stories of the happiest people, places and ideas on earth. Published in his new book, The Happiest. Mike says taking elements from how we have previously lived and how we live now could be key in finding our happiest state. So what else makes up the many facets of happiness? What makes the happiest people and places? Mike shares more on where the search to answer some of humanity's biggest questions began. I was working as, as a journalist for my own organisation. This was roughly 2012. I was really shocked to find that loneliness had just become the number one cause of depression in the Western world. I was working in Adelaide at the time and stood there at the traffic lights and no one's acknowledging one another. And suddenly I turned to my friend and said, we've got to do something about this my journey to to understand my own happiness and certainly to understand happiness in the broader society sort of began in that moment and ever since i've traveled the world 60 odd countries six continents and talked to prime ministers preachers and homeless people and everyone in between i think that's where we start to uncover the puzzle is is by just speaking to as many people as possible and certainly there's a few hundred people that feature in in the book that i've written but many thousands more What has been the power of that close proximity or exploration of travelling over 60 countries in search of these answers? I think the power is just the diversity of humans and where we do find happiness and where we don't find happiness. Certainly, there are some pretty key points I've come to arrive at. Things like I would say in Australia, probably the the biggest point that, that often seems missing is gratitude and appreciation for who we are, where we are, what we have. We're fed this narrative that we never have enough. There's always other people that look like they're doing life better and easier and quickly can be swept up in this idea that, oh, if I just had that bit more. The problem with human beings is we're on this hedonic treadmill, which means we actually never get to that destination of less we set our mind to it of being content. We are hardwired to want more and then we get more and then we would want more. Unfortunately, that's a really tricky part of happiness is there is no sort of end point if you look at it from a material point of view. On that note, is happiness what we think it is? Is being confined to an ideal part of the problem or is not having those golden ideals an even bigger part of the problem? I think setting your definition of happiness is really important. And and the term happiness is actually a problematic one from many of the discussions I've had all over the world. For me, that's why the book's called The Happiest, 
is because I can think about the happiest moments of my life. What does the happiest state look like? And for me, it's really just about being at peace with who I am and, and where I am in the world. If we can do that, and if we don't seek that there's anything else you want in your life, then I would say that's the ultimate happy sort of state. Defining your own version of what makes you happy is, is sort of where the journey begins and understanding who you are and, and what your purpose maybe is in this world is, is sort of a couple of the early chapters that, that I write about. It's about going on your own path and working out how you fill in those little blanks that we sort of, I think, all inherently feel are missing within us, whether that's filled in by your loving partner or filled in by this huge thing that you're chasing in terms of whether it's justice for this group or that group. Throughout your book, we see grief and crisis often behind happiness. You have this array of stories as well and different people that come together. So can you tell me a bit more about the engagement with these experiences of adversity and how you've come to think about resilience, the human spirit and ultimately community power as well? There's lots of stories that touch on it. One's a dear friend in Melbourne who had been through cancer twice and really was, was on her deathbed. Part of what she talks about and what I did a lot of research around was we've all heard of post-traumatic stress, but actually the more common thing that we get out of whether it's small traumas or challenges in life is actually growth. So post-traumatic growth is actually a huge thing. And certainly for me in my life, that's been really pivotal, having suffered some abuse as a child. I think that any time we can see that actually darkness is part of what helps us to see and understand the lightness in life. It could be the Maasai village that I spent time in in the middle of nowhere. What does rain mean to them? It's this huge, big, great event. Whereas for us, we're sort of sitting here going, oh, it's bloody raining. Happiness is one of those things that I do think to some extent you need to be thinking and searching for it. Certainly there's a chapter where I talk about are we happier as a survivalist-based human being. So just every day is a struggle, largely set in my time traveling up the east coast of Africa. And some of those communities were some of the happiest communities I've found anywhere in the world. They are in this constant state of survival. You know, and then the other side of it is how we live, which is this opportunistic, opportunity-based human beings. How do we want to live? We generally get to decide. I'm not convinced either way, but I think that we need to definitely take elements of how we've lived previously and how we are living now and mesh them together if we're to find our happiest state. And later in the book, explore that relationship between economics, the policies and social framework. Finland, Denmark, the Netherlands, Iceland and Norway remain ranking as the world's five happiest countries, according to the World Happiness Report. In the search behind the rankings, you ask co-author, director, Professor Jeffrey Sachs, what he discovered regarding his question, what makes a good society? Can you shed some more light on that response? I've interviewed a number of the editors of the World Happiness Report. I think most of them point to these ideas of social equality. The interesting thing that I think about that is equity doesn't mean equality. So sometimes we get a bit messed up in our thinking. My nephew is one of the people I talk about. So he lives with nonverbal autism and he has a number of barriers that probably don't allow him to live the same quality of life as a lot of kids. He gets given a large amount of money through the NDIS. And that allows him to live a somewhat satisfactory sort of a life. That's what equality looks like. He doesn't get treated the same as me. I got given nothing as a child. That's what creates equality and that's what often feeds into happiness. The other huge one that's often missing, I think we have glimpses of it in Australia, is around just community and sense of well-being. Do you know your neighbours? Do you feel 
safe walking down the street. So there's lots of different parameters that they set as indicators for happiness in different societies. Certainly having a, a certain amount of wealth is generally beneficial. Not being in war, having that sense of safety is really important. There are a number of factors that they measure on a large scale, but I think when you travel around and, and actually see what that looks like on the ground, what it looks like is country and a culture that actually cares about one another. It has almost that village ideal that I actually found in a lot of places in Asia and Africa where we're only well when we're all well. You'll talk to people in Norway, I remember stopping this random group of four women. They talked about, well, we all need to help one another. Outside of those Nordic countries, we don't see that anywhere else in the world. No one quite has that mentality. And it's not to say everyone in those countries has it, but certainly more than 50% do. And so you see governments over there that enact these policies that are about ending homelessness, ending distress and suffering that's unnecessary. You know, I always talk about unnecessary suffering versus necessary suffering. I mean, we're all going to suffer to some extent. The unnecessary suffering is, just, is the stuff that I guess governments can be tasked with ending. Certainly a lot of those countries in Scandinavia are doing a great job of that. I mean, interviewing the Prime Minister of Iceland, she was just so friendly and like that spoke volumes of that country. She was happy to talk about things like climate change on and what we actually really need to do. You know, I think having that boldness as well does create happier countries. Having people that are willing to speak out on behalf of maybe more marginalised groups, it makes us all feel like we are worthy and valued. And I think that's a big thing in places like Australia. Right now, Australia's battling with a housing crisis with 175,000 people on wait lists for social housing for up to seven years, from my understanding. What can perhaps countries like Finland, for example, share with us in terms of solutions? Finland was really, really on the front foot in terms of not only the moral obligation perhaps that we all might feel towards helping those who, for whatever reason, have ended up on the streets, but they're very pragmatic people, the Scandinavians as Australian. For every homeless person that we don't put in a house, it costs us roughly $25,000 a year. If we actually house these people, it would actually save us money. And also, it's the right thing to do because we all haven't been born equal. That's the thing mm -hmm. that I, I think Americans often get wrong with a lot of their policies is this idea that we're all born equal. That's not true. So how does the government make us live more equally to appointing themselves as their role is to get us to that point of all living as equally as possible. The great and the horrible thing about human behaviour is we have this social comparison theory that all of our minds want to compare with how everyone else is doing around us. So for instance, the easiest thing you can do to increase your happiness is have the nicest house on the worst street. What governments can do is help us to all live and feel like we're living a reasonable quality of life. And I think that that's certainly what the Scandinavians are doing. And what we could do here, if we housed every homeless person in Australia, our government would save money. The simplest policy that the Scandinavians and particularly Finland were utilising um, in order to help to do this was 25% of all new housing developments had to be affordable housing. In terms of looking at some of the Nordic countries, but also you mentioned some of the Asian villages or the more remote villages from places you visited across the world, there's often this discussion of the interplay between moral and value-based versus the material. So what are your thoughts around this divide now? I think we've told ourselves this strange thing that if you 
don't have enough that you can't possibly be happy and certainly that's not true from what i've seen in some of the more remote villages that i've been to where we lived in a cow dung hut in the maasai village or i've stayed in the mountains of myanmar in huts you know the people are perfectly happy india is an interesting case where as the internet's become more prolific and people are seeing other people are living differently than what we've been living and suddenly that social comparison theory starts to kick into our minds and i think it's why the women's rights movement in india has suddenly kicked off pretty strongly about maybe five or ten years ago is they were saying that women in other countries aren't made to live like us and so there's some great things that happen when we become more aware but then there's also some real dangers where we're also aware of how all the wealthy people are living in the world and so we never feel like we really have enough or are enough Adelaide author Mike Wasman speaking with me. We'll return in just a moment. Across Australia, you're listening to The Wire, Community Radio's National Current Affairs Program. Adelaide author Mike Wasman travelled over 60 countries and across six continents to capture stories of the happiest people and places across the globe. He says giving is absolutely fundamental to happiness. This year's World Happiness Report also links altruism and kindness to well-being. So what power does altruism have in boosting happiness in communities across the world? Mike explains. There's a whole chapter dedicated to this idea of altruism and giving. One of the figures I talk about is my gran, and particularly in her last days when she was given a bit of freedom, she was filled with altruism for anyone and everyone who she came in contact with. And that's really what gave her a lot of happiness. Certainly, it's a huge part of my own happiness. And you look at villages that I've been to that are really happy. There's almost a forced altruism because if I don't have enough, then my neighbour will share some fish with me. I think that certainly not poverty, having a need for other people around us and not having this idea of this individualistic I have everything I need actually breeds a lot of natural altruism and giving that is what defines us as humans the whole reason we've evolved so successfully is because we are able to cooperate in huge numbers that at its heart is about giving and altruism it's like one of the stories that comes to mind is Bhutan which a Mm -hmm. lot of people will know actually measures its happiness and governs around that happiness one of the things I loved about that society, you know, not only did the government lend tractors to farmers, and that was around happiness. Imagine that developing country, what's the hardest thing to do is to have large scale farming. But if a government lends you a, a tractor at a really cheap rate, that's a great policy to help your country advance. Then what people would do out on the farms is they would ask four or five of their neighbours or their friends to come and help them on their farm. And then naturally we want to give back and there's that natural altruism where you then help your neighbour. I think that at our heart, we are a giving species. Maybe we're being taught to take more than we give, but I think that that's why we're being plagued by a lot of the unhappiness that we see in our society. Giving is absolutely fundamental to happiness. And in gathering all of this information and perspective from all over the world, what do you think is the biggest challenge to living the the happiest life or finding that ideal of being happy, whether it's fixed or fluid? I think that we're not all living the same narrative. 
that perhaps marketing executives want us to be living and that that's okay. And I think we're starting to understand that this idea of being ourselves is certainly being pushed over the last five or so years. And that's really an important place to start is to not try and live the life that we see someone else living happily because you're not that person. That's where it starts. And then it's about having that bravery to go, well, how far will I push that? How much will I dig into who I am and why I exist here on earth? And if we start to think about that sort of really deep purpose, that's where a sustainable version of happiness comes in. And just lastly, can you shed any other light on the value of perspective and perception? How have these been defined throughout the experiences that brought this book together? Can you perhaps recall any moments or people that you met that still surprise you? Perspective is everything. It's the final chapter of the book. It's all about perspective. Probably my editor's favourite story really comes back to that. I travelled to Sri Lanka and it was some years following the huge Boxing Day tsunami and thousands of people had died in that country. I went to this little village that had been forced to exist because they used to live down by the water and and this person said, you must go and visit this house over here. And this little girl had run out and, and caught my eye and, and I, I ended up in front of these two people. This woman proceeds to tell me the most heart-wrenching story about losing her four children to the tsunami and not in the first wave. That was the second one that took all of her children, including her baby who was in her arms. And she was just beside herself at that point and her and her husband went into a very dark place. They didn't really come out of it for quite a long period. And the story that she eventually tells me that was the start of her coming out of it was just opening her eyes and someone came to visit and said, oh, how are you? And and there had been other people that had also been through similar experiences because she'd been trying to get pregnant and that was another part of her woes. She was quite old at, at that point and her and her husband thought that they may never be able to get pregnant. That was adding to their grief. They had no children, no one to look after them because they don't have a pension or any sort of social security in such a country and such a children who will allow you to live a long and healthy life and they didn't have any. They eventually get news that they're pregnant and the doctor said there's a lot of people that lost a lot of children around here and she eventually goes and talks to one of her neighbours. Her neighbour ends up to telling her she lost eight children. The perspective's horrible on both sides. Both people have lost all their children. So one's lost eight, one's lost four. I think it's realising that maybe you're not alone in your grief in that instance, or that we are a shared entity as human beings and we're all going through various different things. I think that if you can have that perspective, it'll save you, one, a lot of heartache, but it'll also add a lot of like love and connection into your life at, at every turn. And if loneliness is the number one cause of depression, you're not alone. No one's alone. It's just about finding the right people that can give you the perspective that you need on life. And that's really a large part of the ball game. It's not to minimise our problems here, but maybe just broadening our perspective is, is that really, really critical thing that can bring us all a, a fair bit of happiness. Adelaide author Mike Wasman speaking with me. AI is taking the creative sector by storm and not always in a good way. An AI training data set called Books 3 was found to have illegally scraped over 180,000 books. Copyright activists are concerned about this issue, but it also opens conversation about ethics and generative AI. 
The Wires contributor from Tune FM, Ash Taylor, asked lecturer at the University of New England, Dr. Sophie Masson, what her experience with artificial intelligence is as an author. There's a couple of things. So the ASA statement is very much about the lack of permission of the big tech companies in using authors' works, scraping authors' work, as they call it, to teach generative AI. That's resulted in 200,000 books being pirated, of which 18,000 of those are Australian authors. And I know quite a few people whose works have been used like that illegally, going against copyright law completely. And at the same time, the tech companies are monetizing these, the generative AI products. So basically, they are pirating and then profiting from it, which is exactly what pirates do, of course, because the source data search tool, which was actually put online by various people that The Atlantic had put together, was available. And so I put my name into it. And fortunately, none of my works have been great. So I think that a lot of the people who've had their works scraped are mostly people who write adults works. Most of my works have been in the children's realm, although some children's things have been used, mostly it's adult fiction and non-fiction. My other experiences with AI are kind of very strange and rather illuminating about the whole idea of AI itself as it impacts on creativity and on intellectual capital and so on. As someone who's probably a bit more involved in the politics of writing and authors in Australia, is there a push right now to get some sort of framework for legislation or protections for copyright? Absolutely, there is. I mean, the ASA issued the statement, but so did the APA, which is Australian Publishers Association, and the small press network that I represent also supports those statements. Basically, the APA said that there has to be four main prongs, transparency around how AI is being used, a clearly defined ethical framework, ensure appropriate incentives and protection for creators and rights holders, and balancing the technological advancement with societal and cultural responsibilities. So those things are all very important, and they have been lobbying the government to do that. And I think the government is very well aware of it and is, I guess, working around how to do it because, as you say, it's very new. Um, And as you say, too, I think the other thing is, and I read a really interesting article by a guy called Ted Chiang, who's a very, very well-known speculative fiction author in America, I think. He was saying basically that we need new words for this because it's not intelligent, as you say. It's something else. He said it's more around statistics than anything, but he had quite an interesting take on it. And I think there's uses for it in some way but the uses aren't write me a novel based on this theme or write me a novel that Sophie Masson would have written the uses are more like give me an outline for what an essay would look like how do I formulate these things what is the difference then in how a human creative person thinks how much effort do you put into your works a huge amount of effort. And it's also to do with your experiences, with your life, with the way that you are alive in the world, with the way that you perceive the world. It's to do with being in your body. It's to do with so many things that only a human can have. Animals certainly have that as well in the sense that they don't create those you know, novels and art, and art and so on, but they are alive in the world and they have their own experience of the world. But a thing which isn't sentient and which isn't living doesn't have that. So it's it really is 
with right with creative work it's the accumulation of so much it's some of it is intangible some of it is to do and like i tell students and so on everyone has their own way of seeing the world and so for people who want to write and who see ai as a way to get them into this sphere of being an author what is your advice for them to do instead my advice is to actually read books about writing to go to courses to go to writers groups i think something like the una writers group is a fantastic way to um, network with other people to talk about work to get inspiration the other thing is to read as much as possible read as much as possible of the kind of books that you want to write kind of writing you want to do because that is the best way of actually getting a handle on what writing is about the other thing is keep alert to your world to your your daily experience think about okay when you look at the sky what are you what are you really looking at what can you see think about a flower in your garden an ant on the on the path all those things that we see every day but imagine that you're very new to it imagine that you've just woken up into the world how would you see that i i think that those things are really enhancing your experience by thinking about what you're seeing what you're hearing that's one of the best ways of training a writer really to be alert to your world to be alert to things around you and to enrich your experience by reading other people's works and thinking about them it's much harder than putting things into ai if you like i'm consuming anyway it is infinitely more rewarding dr sophie masson from the university of new england speaking with tune fm's ash taylor And unfortunately, that's the end of the show today. Thanks so much for listening. The Wire is a co-production between 2SER in Gadigal, Sydney, 3ZZZ in Nam, Melbourne, 4ZZZ and Radio 4EB in Mianjin, Brisbane and Radio Adelaide with the great support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation and the Community Radio Network. Remember, you can check out our stories at thewire.org.au and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. I'm Emma Watsky coming to you from Radio Adelaide in Tandanya, Adelaide. Thanks so much for your company and we'll see you next time on The Wire.